With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Welcome to Podcast One. We hope you'll support our sponsors who bring you these podcasts absolutely free and with limited interruptions. And of course, we appreciate you listening to this show, which will get started in just a second. Since 1983, Eddie Trunk has been the voice for fans of rock, hard rock, and heavy metal. A best-selling author, host of TV's That Metal Show, and seven national radio shows, including Trunk Nation, daily on Sirius XM. Interesting. Eddie offers the world his news-making interviews, passionate analysis, honest commentary, and who knows what else. So welcome to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. podcast1.com and iTunes. Thank you for downloading. Thank you for streaming. Thank you for listening to everybody in the U.S. Hope everybody had a great Labor Day weekend. Look at this. We're already unofficially done with summer. The good news is if you're a hardcore football fan like I am, that means football season is here. Excited for the kickoff this weekend. And as a big Giants fan, well, I don't know what to expect with my New York football Giants, but uh could go either way, but that's the fun of football season. Like, it could go either way for any of the teams, and that's why it's so much fun to watch. So, excited football's here. A little bum that the end of the summer is pretty much here, but there is much to do. There's much going on. There's much I have going on, including getting ready to head to the West Coast next week, where I'll spend about a week and a half hitting L.A., Anaheim, Phoenix, Vegas, Houston, I'm going to be jumping all over the place in the next couple of weeks. Be sure to follow on Twitter at Eddie Trunk for up to the second news info and updates. Instagram as well at Eddie Trunk, Facebook at Eddie Trunk, and EddieTrunk.com is the official online home. But as I always say, Twitter, where I can give you the up to the second news and info as it happens, is the best way to go if you only wanted to do one. Uh, some of the stuff I'm going to be doing over the next couple of weeks is some radio stuff. Um, going to be uh, hosting a couple shows for the Big Hair Nation Tour, which is sponsored by SiriusXM. I will be hosting the shows in L.A., in Anaheim, in Phoenix, and in Vegas. So I'll be seeing you in those cities if you're attending that show. And uh, in addition to that, I'm going to be hosting a show with Vince Neal at Proof Rooftop Lounge in Houston. So there's a lot of stuff going on. Looking forward to all all of it, and hopefully seeing you out and about at the uh, at the various gigs and events as they come. And I'll do my best to keep you updated. I, I tell you, my schedule is such that I'm just trying to take them one day at a time and knock them down as they come, and not get too overwhelmed. So I'm moving through each thing as it comes, and that's try that that'll be the best way for me to tell you what's going on as well. Although you can always. Uh, take a look at the homepage of eddytrunk.com and see the shows listed there. Also, some stuff coming up at the IDL Ballroom in Tulsa, including Sebastian Bach, including Tom Kiefer. So there's uh, there's other things to, uh, to do in Tulsa as well, uh, where I always have a great time hosting those shows at the IDL Ballroom, so that'll be a lot of fun as well. Look forward to seeing all my friends in Tulsa soon, once again, next month. So also, uh, real quick, before we get to our interview this week, I do want to tell you, that I already shot the first season of episode, uh, the first episode, I should say, of season two of my new TV show, Trunk Fest, on Access TV. And I shot it in Ohio, just outside of 
Columbus <laughs> drew a blank there for a second. And I uh, I had a blast. You know, it was very much outside of my wheelhouse. I shot at a country festival called Country Jam. Now, I'm not here for a second to tell you I'm a big country music fan by any stretch, but I, I respect other genres of music, and it's fun learning about them, which is kind of the whole idea of this new TV show that I'm doing is the experience and learning about new stuff. So it's going to be fun. I think you guys are going to enjoy it when it airs. It won't be till next year. I'm already going to be shooting episodes for season two, but we need to get all of them done before they start to air. So season two will come to Access TV sometime next year. Coming up next, I'm going to be shooting at a festival in Louisville called Bourbon and Beyond, and then a metal festival, Aftershock in Sacramento. So uh, great to be doing the second season of Trunk Fest. Can't wait for you guys to see it. Enjoy the repeats or catch the uh, first season now on demand, of course, on Access TV. Don't forget, Sirius XM every day. You can hear me live 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time, replaying every night 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern time on my radio show, Trunk Nation, talking rock, interviews, and much more. And that is on Channel 106 volume. And if you are not a Sirius XM subscriber, and you are in the U.S. or Canada, you can hear Sirius XM and my show and the volume channel right now for free until September 10th. All inactive radios are on, and you can uh, listen online or on the app. It's absolutely free and open to all as a trial until September 10th. So a great chance for you to check out Sirius XM, check out volume, check out my show if you are are already not on board and you can hear what uh, what I do on a daily basis and what you get to hear a little sampling of as far as the interviews are concerned here on the weekly podcast. So check it out, totally free. Go to SiriusXM.com, download the app if you don't have a radio or if you have a radio in your car and it is not active, it should be now. And you can hear me, like I said, every day on 106, Talk and Rock, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern Time live and replaying every night 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern. So great chance to sample and hopefully get on board and, and join me for the daily rock talk show that is called Trunk Nation on the channel volume, which again is 106. So this week for the interview here on the podcast, I did this one a few weeks ago. And, you know, I love talking to the guys I love the big marquee interviews. Don't get me wrong. I mean, we just had, I just had massive interviews last week. You had Klaus Mina from Scorpions and Glenn Hughes. Of course, the big news making Steve Perry interview, which was one of the, I got more reaction to that than maybe anything I've ever done in a long time. So that stuff's all great. Don't get me wrong. But I also love talking to the guys you don't hear from, not the marquee names, and, you know, get, hearing some different stuff and getting some different stories and the, the guys that, that don't get all the publicity and the headlines. And that's what I'm going to do this week with Bobby Rock. Now, Bobby Rock, many of you know, was the drummer in the Vinnie Vincent Invasion. Bobby wrote a book recently called This Boy Is Gonna Rock. And it's all about recording and being a member of the Vinnie Vincent Invasion. A period of time and a band and an artist that Vinnie Vincent, at least, is that so many people are so fascinated by. And a guy that has not fully come out and told his story still. Bobby Rock is really giving you a real in-depth story about what he went through and how he got that gig and his observations of the Vinnie Vincent invasion during their entire history. Because he was in it from the beginning right till the end. And it's a fascinating story. It's a balanced story, the way Bobby tells it in his book. And, you know, the other thing I didn't know is Bobby Rock has written a ton of books, some on fitness, some on nutrition, some on playing. But his story overall is fascinating. After the Vinnie Vincent invasion, he went on to join the band Nelson. These days, currently, he plays in Lita Ford's band and has for a number of years I've known him for a long time, not extraordinarily well, but always nice to see him, always nice to say hello. And I've uh, last time I saw him, he told me about this book. He sent it to me, and I really enjoyed it. If you are a fan of the Vinnie Vincent Invasion stuff, it is a must-read. It's the most comprehensive story of that time that's ever come out. So I would highly recommend this book, and Bobby gives us his insights about that and 
you know, his fitness regimen and his playing with some of the other acts that he was in. But it's predominantly about Vinny and that whole period of time. So I think you guys are going to enjoy this. I know I got a lot of Kiss fans, a lot of fans of the VVI records that listen to me and my show. So it's always fun to get those guys that are not the out front guys, that are not the big marquee names, and hear their stories because a lot of times they are very compelling and um, – you know, can really shed some interesting insights that you may not have known before. So I hope you enjoy it. Bobby Rock, this week's, not to be confused with the producer Bob Rock, who, by the way, I did have on the podcast a while ago. But this is Bobby Rock, the drummer, on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. Coming up. The Eddie Trunk Podcast. So here are some useful car tips that uh, you might not be aware of. Check this out. Coffee filter and a little bit of olive oil can clean your interior. Removing excess weight from your car, that'll improve your gas mileage. And you can place your key fob to your chin to increase its range, which is pretty weird. Well, here's another tip you also might not know about, and that is that True Car also helps people get used cars. That's right. True Car isn't just for buying new cars. With their certified dealer network and nationwide inventory of nearly 1 million used cars, you'll enjoy real pricing on actual inventory and a simpler buying experience, whether you buy new or used. And with True Car, users can see what others paid so they know if they're getting a good deal before buying. They're also more likely to enjoy a faster buying experience by connecting with True Car certified dealers. So when you're ready to buy a new or used car, check out True Car and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features are not available in all states. If you like this show, you need to check out CarCast, the longest-running automotive podcast. CarCast is a twice-weekly automotive show hosted by Adam Carolla, wrestling superstar Bill Goldberg, and Matt the Motorator D'Andrea. It's the only show of its kind that explores all aspects of the automotive space, from the performance aftermarket to new car buying and the future of the automotive industry. The guys answer your questions, offer advice, and feature guests from the automotive industry and celebrity car enthusiasts. Listen to Car. With Goldberg and Motorator Matt D'Andrea every Wednesday and Adam Carolla with the Motorator every Friday on the Podcast One mobile app or iTunes Podcasts. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Welcome back to the Eddie Trunk Podcast. As mentioned, my guest this week is Bobby Rock, great drummer. You know him from currently playing with Lita Ford. Bobby wrote a book recently about his time in the Vinnie Vincent invasion, and we get into that story and a whole lot more. Here we go. Bobby Rock, enjoy on this week's Eddie Trunk Podcast. Bobby, how are you, bud? Good. What's up, Eddie? How's things, man? Okay, you've been hitting it hard out there. Bobby, of course, currently plays with Lita Ford. She's been uh, she's been keeping you busy, huh? Oh, yeah, man. It's a year-round proposition with Miss Ford, but we're having a great time out there. The van's kicking hard. We're enjoying ourselves. How many years you got in playing with Lita now, Bob? Five and a half now. Five and a half, huh? And how do, how do you find yeah. playing her music versus some of the other stuff you've done? Oh man, it, it, it's a it's a stone groove, brother. It, you know, it, it's hard rock drumming. You just you know, hit it hard in that pocket. Uh, love the material. You know, the band with you know Marty O'Brien on bass and Patrick Kennison on guitar. You know, now we now we got that point where we've been playing together long enough where there's that chemistry. And uh, so I, I love the gig, man. We have a great time out there. And Lita wrote the foreword to this book, which was really nice. Said some wonderful things about you. That must have been, meant a lot to you, huh? It really, really did, man. I, mean, I felt like it, you know, I asked her about it. I thought it would make sense if, you know, if having that sort of modern perspective to balance out with what the primary subject matter was in the book, I thought it would, it could be cool. But man, she really blew me away with that intro, man, for sure. Yeah, it really was very sweet. And, uh, you know, I've known Lita for many years. She's, she's a wonderful person. So it's really nice to have seen that. So you talk about the primary subject matter in the book. Bobby, and it is the time, your time in the Vinnie Vincent Invasion, the two albums and the tours that you did. And before we get to that, one of the things in looking through the book that I was really surprised to read is it said somewhere that I, I think this is your, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, your ninth book? That is correct. 
What were the other books about? Were they music related? Were they about your story or were they taught? Because I'm not familiar with your other books. What did you write about? Well, probably I'd say three or four of them were music like instruction related. Like the first book I wrote was in 1989. It was a, a drumming instructional book that went hand in hand with my first instructional video. It was called Metamorphosis. So it was more instruction based. Uh, and so I did a couple others like that. And then, then I, I did some, some collaborative things. Like I, I wrote, I co-wrote a, a book on funk bass guitar with a guy named Bill the Buddha Dickens. So that was probably around number four, number five. And then from there, I kind of ventured, ventured off into some other subjects. Some of the books were either collaborations or just out and out ghost writing, you know, where somebody hires me to essentially write the voice anonymously or write the book anonymously in their voice so i did a couple of those i mean and subject matter has been everything from health and nutrition to you know metaphysics and spirituality i i did one of my own books on human sexuality believe it or not in this kind of a crazy you know board game in a book uh type of thing called hypothetical erotica that was probably 20 years ago now so it's just it, it's been a craft that I've worked hard at and studied for you know 25 years now, and I've taken it as seriously as my drumming. It's just been more of a lower profile uh, endeavor, you know. So, uh, but I've also had a blog for quite a few years, and that was actually the impetus for this new book. I did several blog posts about my audition with the Vinnie and Invasion and doing the first record with the Invasion, and based on the response I got from that, and then and kind of looking at that material from the perspective of a writer, I said, man, you know, there's a fucking gold mine here in terms of just rich storytelling, you know, like that cast of characters. I mean, you couldn't make this shit up. (laughs) Benny Vincent, Mark Slaughter, Dana Strum. I mean, these characters and what we went through. And of course that era all combined. That's why I decided just a year ago, man, you know what? I need to really document this in book form. So that's how it all came about. So this is the first time you're tackling that subject, which is what so many people know you from. But, you know, you mentioned that you've done writing and and been a ghostwriter and what have you. This book you did write. You don't have a co-writer on this. And I got to tell you, you've got a gift for writing, man. You're a great storyteller. I really was was, uh, taken with how well this this book is put together. So kudos to you on that. I mean, it's it's, it's not an easy thing to do. I've I've written two myself. One I had some help on, one I didn't. And uh, half of my, both of my books are photo driven. So it didn't, wasn't even all text and I'm working on my story right now. And I mean, it's a bitch to dedicate the time to it and really shape it the way you want it and make it in your voice. And uh, you, you do a great job doing that. Thanks. I appreciate it, man. Yeah. P- people don't realize, you know, what all goes into it and the multiple drafts and uh, you know, you know how it is firsthand. You, you, you go back over it again and again and again, and then an editor looks at it and you correct a few things and it's very arduous. And, and that's why a lot of people, you know, that's why if, you're not, if you don't do it regularly, it, it really helps to have some help, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. So, Interesting timing here for you to finally write a book about the your time with the book is your story and it's about you as a kid coming from Houston going to LA getting the audition and getting the gig in the Vinnie Vincent Invasion and, and stepping into that circus at the time um, but the timing on this I'm assuming when you started writing it because I know every time I would see you we I'd bring up Vinnie and I and at that point nobody had seen him nobody had heard from him but. Uh, during the course of you writing this, it must have been pretty interesting because that's when the guy came out of hiding pretty much, and I did that interview with him. So that must have been a real sort of a button, I know, kind of at the end of the book because I imagine as you wrote the bulk of this book, he it was going to end a little bit differently with him still pretty much being in hiding, right? That's absolutely correct, man. And, and I, I was literally midstream. I was getting close to, to finishing the first draft. And, man, all of a sudden I heard about it. And at first I thought, okay, yeah, this is another one of those rumors. He's not going to really make it, you know, uh, whatever. And then as, as we started getting closer and closer to the date and to me finishing the book, I realized, wow, he's really, uh, he, really going to do this, <laughs> you know. So it definitely gave it a different slant. And as I, as I think I might have mentioned in, in the book, you know, I, I was going to originally release it around uh, in December of last year. And, and he was scheduled to come out in, in January for the that, uh, Kiss Expo. So I made a conscious decision to kind of hold back on the release of it. I said, you know what, man, 
just to not muddy the waters, you know, I, just to have like this book come out and, and, you know, my style, man, isn't to throw anybody under the bus or to try to write this sensationalized version of what happened. But I just felt like, you know, 20 plus years later, the guy should be able to come out and have a clean slate to talk about whatever, to say whatever he wanted to say, however he wanted to say it without the distraction of a potentially conflicting account, uh, if you will. And plus, I thought, you know what, man, I'll, I'll just I'll wait till all that happens, till that till that circus comes to town, and then I'll have a, a, a nice, clean sort of bow tie ending for the story. So that's why I decided to wait till after Atlanta, you know. Yeah. Well, let me ask you. So, so into some specifics about the book. And again, we're talking to Bobby Rock. The boy is called. The boy is going to rock. It's his time uh, as a drummer. Predominantly, most of the book is about his time with the Vinnie Vincent Invasion, the two studio albums, and the tour with the touring with that band. But one of the things that struck me, because you know, Bobby, we hear and have heard all the stories, pro and con, about Vinnie. And I think reading through this book, I think you're very balanced and very fair throughout about how you treat everybody. But the one thing, man, that I did not realize is that you getting your first gig, your first real big gig with the Vinnie Vincent Invasion, major label record deal, all of that, and the fact that they put you through the ringer to record the drums on that first record. I mean, and you tell that story in great detail, but in a nutshell, I mean, anybody that knows anything about making records, it's usually the drums that are laid down first along with the bass but they actually did it reverse and made you copy a drum machine. Is that really, is that how it all went down? Yeah, th- this was, the concept was sort of the brainchild of Dana Strum. He'd been doing some producing at that point before the, the VVI record, which he co-produced with Vinny. And so, you know, you got to remember this was 1985 and pyromania was all the rage at the time. This represented like this absolute state-of-the-art production and in the scene in general, you got to remember that everything was like drum machine driven outside of rock. Like you, you put on the radio and you got all the Michael Jackson shit and all the dance, but you know, like that, that, you know, uh, everywhere you turn machine, 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 that was like the sound. That was the vibe, these huge, like fake sounding drums like that. That was what was going on everywhere else, but rock, except pyromania. And to some degree, uh, 1984, although that still retained Alex's vibe, this was like the, the, the sound. So to sort of better get that metronomic precision, although, of course, they wanted to still use live drums, Dana did it in reverse. So they laid down a, just a basic drum machine groove uh, that just essentially did the same thing through the whole song because it was just a reference point for the, for the uh, groove of the meter. And then they recorded Vinny's rhythm guitar first. These were keeper rhythm guitar tracks that went on top first. Then Dana did the bass. So the concept was when I went to go do drums, my job was to sort of replace the drum machine with the full-on drum parts. And, and, and again, the, the idea was, I suppose, that with the, with the uh, guitars and bass cut to the absolute precision of the drum machine, it would give it more of that, you know, uh, kind of that, that, that super pristine uh, sound, that, like the, the – the, the Def Leppard record had how how Def Leppard did that record I don't know but that that was the kind of that was the that was the inspiration I would think for the the concept so when we go in to record it now what happens is everything I played as a live rock drummer in this huge room by the way we had a kick-ass drum sound and the stage was definitely set everything I played was brought under the scrutiny of a machine so where we kind of found ourselves and I wound up doing that record three times i mean three complete start to finish times they were flying my ass back and forth to houston because i was still living there it was it was a little traumatic traumatic if i'm being honest man because it was this is like like you said this was my first shot at recording i go man is this what it's like to record for a big label and everybody assured me you know privately that no this is not you know this is this is some madman shit going on here man this is not what it's normally like but that so that that was what we were up against, and, and, and as I mentioned, I think the, the 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 reason we did that is not because Vinny was trying to be a prick or put the put the young rookie through a boot camp or whatever. I, I just think he was he was stuck between wanting to have like that killer live drummer vibe because you know I had you know he, he liked all the the chopsy stuff that I'm doing, all the technique and the fast double bass shit, and he liked that vibe, but he also liked that metronomical you know, almost machine-like sound that was going on in, in modern music. So I think Vinny was trying to reconcile how do we get the best of both worlds. 
and it took the few approaches that he wanted to try. And then ultimately, for the third time around, we just went back to essentially what I did the first time around, or what we tried to do the first time around, and we, I just cut the drums live across the board of the tracks, you know. And that's ultimately what, what wound up being on the record. I mean, but it's I, I'm reading this and you go through the process of you being called back. And I mean, them listening to every little way a drum hit happened and every every little micro element of what you were doing against the, the machine drum tracks. And, you know, I wonder if it was there at a point where you just felt like throwing your hands in the air and be like, screw this. I, I can't do this and bailing. Or were you I mean, you, I mean, because you were a trooper, man, you you really it sounds like dealt with a lot there. Quite honestly, you know, that was my first major gig. It was a life-changing opportunity, and I never for a second thought about quitting. In fact, I, it was the opposite. I didn't want to get fired, man. I kept thinking, you know, do I suck this bad that they got to keep bringing me back to redo it? I thought I could play. I can't play. Do I need to go back and play bars again? Like, what the hell? You know, and so I just did. I kept my mouth closed. I did whatever they asked of me. I just did the best I could, man, and, and you know, the thing is, is that when you're, when you're, you know, the way, the way it turned out is they would, they would put like the machine hard pan on the left speaker, my drum tracks hard pan on the right speaker. And that's how Vinny would listen down. And when you do that, you know, there's going to be, a, you, you might be able to hear a little bit of a discrepancy on a snare drum here or a bass drum there, where it's just ever so slightly off from the machine. The listener would never in a million years hear that kind of discrepancy because when you hear it in the context of the track, you don't have that, met, that, that drum machine reference playing side by side with it. But we would listen to these tracks down, and it, you couldn't tell. It, the shit was so dead on that it, it, it sounded like one and the same. So the point being that uh, if one little note was off anywhere, I had to go back in, and they would like punch me in and out. Dana was always the, the guy operating the tape machine, so he right. would punch me in and out to do it but but that it, it's still kind of hit or miss you know the, the idea is how how much like a machine can you play yeah that hey became, like the challenge you know hey bobby let me jump in here i gotta go to a break back with more with bobby rock coming up next on this week's eddie trunk podcast this, this is the eddie trunk podcast So if you like this show, you need to listen to Spike's Car Radio. Join writer, comedian, and automotive enthusiast Spike Ferristein each Wednesday here at Podcast One. Spike hangs out with his pals like Jerry O'Connell, Wade Eastwood, and Jerry Seinfeld, and they talk cars. It's a humorous roundtable discussion about the latest car news and advice for new and classic car buyers. So download Spike's show each week on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. This is the Eddie Trunk Podcast. Eddie Trunk here with you talking to Bobby Rock. Again, the book is called The Boy is Going to Rock. It is available now. And it predominantly, although I, I mean, there's certainly other things in the book, a big part of it is addressing Bobby's time where everybody first became aware of him and that is playing drums with Vinnie Vincent in the Vinnie Vincent invasion and on those two albums and tours. What's interesting too, Bobby is that you, and as you talk about in the book, you grew up an enormous Alice Cooper fan. That was always your guy. That was always your band. And then of course right. you, you get this gig and then you find out the news that you're going to be touring opening for Alice Cooper, which had to be surreal, I would think. And then I remember reading the book. You actually had a chance to sound check with the band or something at one point, right? That's right. Yeah. Ken Mary was uh, Alice's drummer, killer drummer, by the way. And uh, so you know, you go about these tours, and we're usually on standby during their sound check, getting ready to do hours right after. And one day, uh, I, you know, Ken was was sick. he's like in the bus, sick. He couldn't even make it out for sound check, although he would manage to struggle through the gig later that night. So they just literally needed a drummer to get up and sound check with the band. So it's like, hey, Bobby, can you come up and, and do a few songs with us? I'm like, uh, yes, I believe I could accommodate you there. And that was pretty pretty off the chain, man. I mean, the whole thing was. I mean, imagine the first gig I did with Alice was like at a hockey arena in Michigan. Uh, the first gig I did with Vinny was opening for Alice at this hockey arena. So it was, as you mentioned, very, very surreal, especially given my connection to Alice early on, you know, as a fan. 
So a few more things about making this first record. You go, you they put you through the ringer on the drums, and uh, you, you end up getting it, getting it, and you get everything gets together, and this record comes out. And then, of course, the guy who sang on that first record, who was a one-time member of Journey, Robert Fleischman, he is uh, thing, he does the record, but I, I guess the impression that I get, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, is Robert left the band. For a couple things. First of all, you guys went with a, even by the standards of the time, meaning 86-ish, a very extreme glamish look, which Robert wasn't fully down with. And then I guess it seems like he, you know, he was unhappy about the uh, compensation and the nature of the deal. Would all those points be accurate? Well, he definitely wasn't down for the glam vibe, as is obvious. If you look at the, on the back cover of the first record, he just, he refused to do it basically to, to do the makeup and, and do that, that vibe we were doing. But I think that was, that was something that we could overcome. The, the, I think the re the, the, the issue at the time was there was some contract that our manager was insisting that he signed, you know, our manager at the time, George Seward wanted to have all of us under like personal contracts as well. Um, and, and he wasn't going to go for it. So that was the, re- you know, so basically he refused to sign the paperwork. He did not like the, the financial arrangement and, and I guess, you know, being, uh, uh, you know, all the implications of having this exclusive management thing. So, so the business deal was what ultimately drove him away. Now, what I found out later was, you know, I think, you know, there was always, I always had a sense of resistance from Robert early on. Like, uh, you know, we were, Robert and I, you know, he's super cool. We always got along really well, but throughout the making of the record, I didn't really see him at the studio very much. And, and, I would hear, you know, Vinny on the phone with them, and there just there seemed to be like something going on. And what I found out later was that after Robert did the demo with Vinny, those the first three songs as they appear on the record is what got Vinny his deal with Chrysalis. Boys are gonna rock, shoot you full of no substitute. Robert sang on those songs, but before Vinny started shopping it, I think Robert was under the impression that the deal, like whatever deal Vinny got, would be more like a, a collaborative thing, like a joint type of a deal. And I don't know, I guess Vinny didn't get that memo and he goes out and, and signs basically a solo deal. And the impression I get is that Robert was really put off by that. And while he agreed to come back and do the, the record, do the vocals on the record, I don't know that he was ever really all in beyond that. You know, I think he said, okay, cool. I'll come in. I'll do the record. We'll see what happens from there. Uh, but I, I don't think he was ever really that on board with, you know, jumping on the road and, and, and all of the things that that implies. You know, Robert, you got to understand, was, was pretty established in the business even then. He had a wife and kid that, you know, to jump on a bus and, and uh, with, with some newbie band opening up for somebody else and all that. I think you put it all together and the contract was just enough to sort of push him over the edge to not do the gig. Yeah, I mean, that's not an uncommon story where guys go into a situation thinking they're going to be equal members and it's going to be a a true band thing. And then they find out, no, it's really just one guy signed to the deal and then everybody else is along for the ride. I mean, I I remember reading a story with Bob Daisley, the first Ozzy Osbourne record was supposed to be the whole thing was the band was supposed to be called Blizzard of Oz. It was supposed to come out under the name Blizzard of Oz. And Bob wrote those songs and with Lee Kerslake and all those guys. And then the record comes out the day the record hits. And it says the name of the album is Blizzard of Oz. And it says Ozzy Osbourne above that. And he's like, whoa, what's going on here? So that that's not all that uncommon, unfortunately, in the business. I've seen that happen right. a number of times. For you personally, Bobby, you know, it sounds like you kind of, especially in those earlier, in that early years, that first year with that record, that you were not in the best of financial situations either. Were you just, <laughs> you were just happy because you had a major gig? Were you happy with how you were being paid? I mean, imagine you didn't, you didn't really have a piece of the action, did you? You were probably just a hired gun, right? I was basically a hired gun. You know, we, we, I had what, what you, I guess, you consider sort of like a, a hybrid deal. In that, you know, I had a little bit, I think I had like a token, like half a point or something like that on the record, so that if the record like really blew up, and, if, and presuming all the, the, the spending wasn't totally out of control, I, I could I could potentially get a little something on the back end, you know. Uh, but beyond that, you know, the, the weekly wage was, you know, I, I don't know, 500 bucks a week or whatever. It was, it, was, it was pretty much chump change, even by those standards. A grand a week back then was probably the standard sort of hired gun pay I'm, I'm guessing from back then uh but you know so but as a young guy you know making any kind of steady money i was cool with it plus i had that you know little bit of 
carrot dangling hope that, okay, if it goes through the roof, uh, I could really make some more money on the back end. Uh, but you know, man, honestly, it didn't matter, bro. I, I just, you know, I was, I was a guy who's making 150 a week playing clubs, living off of fucking, you know, Campbell soup and peanut butter sandwiches in a motel room. So I, you know, and just to be at that level and to take the step, me, and, and I know when Mark got hired, he felt the same way. And I was like, you know what, whatever, bro, let's it, hit the road and, and make this thing happen. So uh, that, that was my mindset at the time, I believe, at, at 22, you know. A couple more things on this first record that I always wanted to know about. You talk about what you went through to record the drums. You talk about how, like, Vinny's playing, which would be a bit of an issue throughout the course of the, the relatively short period of the band because people thought it was so over the top, especially on that first record. It was too much. I remember having those thoughts at the time that I heard the album. Having been a Kiss fan... And having seen Vinny in Kiss, I literally watched Paul Stanley yell at Vinny on stage for playing too much. Like they would literally argue and fight on stage about it. So Vinny comes out with this record, which is a complete overcompensation the other way, where he just is like, okay, now it's my thing and I'm going to go off. But um, you talk about his playing and how it was like unlike anything else you'd ever heard and how unbelievably loud it was recorded in the studio. Um, there have been allegations, and I've heard this from guitar players, that that although he is a brilliant guitar player, that some of those solos, the tape was actually sped up. Do, do you know if that's true or not? I, I would say that's not true. If anything, you know, there was a there was a technique back then. Uh, I think it's called VSO that that, that dealt with uh, adjusting tempos on tape machines and, and things like that. And if there was any kind of VSO type thing happening, it would have been only ever so slightly because there was an issue with the tempo. Oh, let's make this one a little faster, a little slower, something like that. But but the guy really did play like that, man. And so if, if the implication is, oh, wow, he really couldn't play that fast, they set the tape up. No. Uh, now, they did – there was a lot of editing, you know, this this concept where you can punch in like, the, like you're – you know, the tape's rolling the solos playing and that's, that's how you want to jump in and fix something or pick up where you left off or something like that. Dana Strong was just a master, you know, a puncher. He's super accurate with being able to sort of cut into these little tight nooks and crannies during the solo. So now that did give Vinny the, uh, the, the, the uh, ability to, uh, to sort of piece together these different solos and I can jump in here, jump in there in a way that may not have been so easy to do had he not punched it together. But that was more part of their creative process than anything else. But as far as like just the actual speed and all that, the way he played, uh, this motherfucker could play, man. And, 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 you know, of course, I know it wasn't appropriate for a hard raw record to do this, but he really, he could, I heard him play all different kind, all different styles. I heard him play this like slower Jeff Beck bluesy stuff, Chet Atkins, you know, chicken picking. I mean, this guy was, uh, uh, is, you know, a, a really great musician. Uh, it's just that for whatever reason, he felt compelled to just go all in <laughs> on like the super shred mode on like every, like every opportunity to solo, whether it was during a song or during his open solo stuff was like all of that, man, like this wall of sound, just how many notes can we fit in per cubic second here type <laughs> of a concept. And that, and that, and then it, you know, it, it ends up the listener after after you know ninety seconds of that, it, it just you just numb out basically, you know. Yeah, I mean, and I remember like one of my favorite songs on the first record is "Back on the Streets," and I mean, there's there's some there's some real tasty sort of like uh, that's the one moment on the record. There's a little bit more of a bluesy vibe, and man, when he slows right. down, I mean, there's a lot of guitar players I feel that way about when Zach Wild slows down, when Ingve slows down. Sometimes I wish they would all just th- th- those moments when they slow down just a little bit and get a little bluesy. I mean, it means it's it it, it means so much more against the the shred stuff when you have that yeah. against it versus a barrage and i've always liked when guitar players change it up a little bit like that well yeah and and the 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 saddest thing is excuse me is that the demos were actually like that they they were more like what you just described like the demos that got him signed had the the the, the crazy shred stuff in there but overall there there was more space It, it, it it had more of the slower stuff blended in so that you know like you say whenever he would kick into that super shred mode in contrast to some of the other more blues or something, I think it meant more. It gave the solos more contour. And, you know, even then I thought, you know, man, this, this is crazy over the top and nobody's doing this and blah, blah, blah. 
but man, I, I wish he would have sort of defaulted more to like the way he played on the demos. Cause I just thought it, 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 it again, it, it breathed more. It was more palatable to listen to. And it actually showed more of what all he could do as a musician, you know? Yeah, no doubt. Um, I, uh, the other thing about the first record that again, so 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 Robert Fleischman leaves before the album, uh, as the album gets released and, and before the tour even starts. Mark Slaughter comes in, and here's something that I had no idea about, and I did not even know this could be an issue. That the reason why there's only one video from the first album for Boys Are Gonna Rock with Mark Slaughter lip-syncing to Fleischman's vocals is because Fleischman sued over the fact that, that that they did that. Now, I didn't even know that you could do something like that because that's not the first time in music where some, where musicians in the video have been different than who played on the track. What comes to mind immediately is something like Still of the Night by Whitesnake, where nobody in that right. video played on the song except David Coverdale. So how the hell was, and kudos to Robert, but how the hell was that, uh, he able to make a case because that prevented you from doing any more videos for songs from the first record because Robert did the vocals and Mark was in the band. Absolutely true. And, you know, I don't, I don't know if there maybe is a difference between if you're singing on something or you're the lead singer on something versus the drummer or the bass player or even the guitar player. I don't know what the legalities were or, or how they were able to pull it off or if the threat of him like taking this thing to superior court, so to speak, you know, had Chrysalis just sign off on just cutting him a check to, to get him out of there. I don't, I don't know how it all unfolded, but that's exactly what went down. And of course, you know, I don't know if it was an oversight or if they didn't think they had to, but nobody thought to contact Robert in advance and negotiate permission either. So Robert literally saw this for the first time when he heard about the, the uh, debut video on MTV, he goes, oh, let me check this out. And then he sees Mark up there, you know, basically lip-syncing to his songs, and he went ape shit over it, of course. And so I don't know what the legalities were, but that's absolutely what went down. And, of course, moving forward, you know, there's even thought about, well, what if we had Mark like, record, re-record vocals on a particular track, something like that. But they ultimately decided against it because, theoretically, that would then be a different song, even if everything else were the same that would be a different track than what was on the record. And they're trying to promote the first record and all that. So that was uh, at least what the, the primary reason for not doing another video was. Cause I guess they could have done something where it showed the band, you know, one of these concept videos or whatever, maybe where you right. don't see the guy singing. There, there could have been other options, but that was the primary reason why, uh, why we, why we never did a second video and, and it never really had a, a good second release on the record either. Yeah. I was really surprised by that. Cause I had never heard of a, anybody being, being able to make a case about that, but I guess for, for some, some way that he was, he found an, uh, a way to do it. A few more things on the book. Again, we're talking to drummer, Bobby rock. The book is called the boy is going to rock. It's out now. It's about his time in the Vinnie Vincent invasion and much more. The forward is by Lita Ford, who Bobby currently plays drums with. So second album with Mark Slaughter on vocals, All Systems Go, is released. Here's what I find interesting about this record is that you guys end up getting a song in the Nightmare on Elm Street soundtrack for Love Kills and doing a video right. for that song. Well, well, two things. Before that, and I found this fascinating, the lead single and video from the second album was going to be for a song called Ashes to Ashes, and that was scrapped because Kingdom Come had just broken through with Get It On, and the label felt that radio couldn't handle two songs that were so Zeppelin-like. That's amazing to me because Kingdom Come and Get It On certainly sounded a lot like Zeppelin. It didn't hurt them none, and although Ashes to Ashes has a Zeppelin groove and riff, to me, it wasn't that blatant that there would have been blowback over it, that I would have scrapped it as a single. And you maintain that that decision really hurt the potential success for that second record. That was that was the turning point, man. I mean, we were we've been geared for weeks that this was going to be the first song, Ashes to Ashes. It was it, it was kind of in that still of the night, you know, type of homage to Zeppelin vibe. And I'll never forget it, man. We went to Chrysalis to visit one afternoon, and you know, it was like a fucking morgue in the office there, man. We we were, and we went back. Uh, uh, Jeff Offer, our, our uh, radio uh, promo guy, you know, had it, had his head in his hands, and and you know that song, that Kingdom Come, uh, Kingdom Come track, it, it blew up the charts right away, man. It did not, and a lot of it was based on the novelty of oh wow, 
this is kind of like a modern day Zeppelin thing. So for whatever reason, I mean, I'm with you, you know, I, I, what's, what's radio going to say, Oh no, this is kind of Zeppelin too. We're not going to play it. I don't, I don't know that it would have went down that way, but I guess they just felt like it was too much of a dice roll to go all the way with it. I mean, I think technically speaking, they did release like the 12 inch single or whatever it was. They did, they did throw it out at radio token in a token effort, but we never did a video for it. And if you don't do a video for a song, it's not really perceived as like your big single, uh, especially back then the right. way things were. So that was it, man. And, and then, so we, we, we just rolled on to, you know, track the, the, the second track in the queue, which was, uh, that time of year which i love by the way which is an amazing one of my probably my favorite song on the record but i don't know if it's a lead single exactly right exactly right so that kind of set a weird tone you know especially after the boys are gonna rock video and the mass destruction and the whole vibe that that that, that, you know the freak show that that song was all about to now follow up on as the first release of the second record uh, that time of year I, I don't know that it was most representative of what the trip was, you know. So, uh, so that, that kind of got us off on a, on a weird, some weird footing, I think. And then you get the Nightmare on Elm Street soundtrack, and you shoot a video with Freddy Krueger and the whole thing for a song called "Love Kills." But what's fascinating to me about that was the band was effectively what, where you probably had your most high-profile moment. And your biggest chance at a real breakthrough success, the band was effectively done at the time you guys made that video. I mean, Mark and Dana were already planning Slaughter. And as you mentioned, the video was cut to feature Mark heavily because Chrysalis was already hitching their wagon to him. And there was a a lot of uh, animosity with Vinny. So you guys, it must have been the most surreal thing major Hollywood movie, you've got the character Freddy Krueger in the video, you've got this huge MTV moment, and all this potential buzz for the Vinnie Vincent invasion really blowing up, but the band is behind the scenes, you're done. I mean, did I did I take that the right way? Is that really what, what, what the vibe was? That is precisely the way <laughs> it went down. And as a, matter, as a matter of fact, we were on tour at the time, and we, we, we had like a, like a two days off or whatever it was. So we actually flew back to L.A. from the road to shoot that video. Uh, we, we shot the video in a day or whatever. Then we flew back out to finish effectively the last two weeks of the tour, knowing at that point that it was the Titanic headed for an iceberg. I mean, it was, it was all over but the shouting at that point. And, and then uh, somewhere around the, the, the very end of the tour, in fact, I remember – uh, at the end of the tour, I, I went back to my my uh, parents' house in Houston, the, the house I grew up in, and that and, and the video was out. And back then, like MTV had like this uh, <clears throat> like top ten most requested videos thing going on, like every day at oh, 6 yeah. p.m. or whatever it was. They put, and I, I sat there, you know, the band's broken up. I'm just hanging out at my folks' house, wondering what I'm gonna do next. And I watch this fucking song just just every day, number eight, next day, number six, next day, number th- I just watch this thing <laughs> climb up the charts to number one. So we, we finally get this number one video on MTV or whatever, and the band is completely disbanded at that point. And back then, you know, it wasn't like now where a band breaks up and, and Twitter and Facebook blows up and everybody knows about it inside of 24 hours. Back then, you know, you, you know, Jerry Miller would hear about it and it would be like in the next issue of Metal Edge that would show up like two months later or, you know, the back, you know, how that used to work with the magazines and everything. And uh, so it, with the exception of maybe somebody like a, a, a DJ or a, a DJ on MTV making the announcement during a news section, there wasn't any, uh, uh, there wasn't the same sort of immediacy in, in finding out news. So the band, as, as, the, as the video's rocketing up the charts, the, the, the band's broken up, but the public didn't know about it until way after the fact. What do you think? What do you think? I wonder, Bobby, what would have hypothetically if Love Kills would have blown up and become a hit single? Hypothetically, what would have happened? Would you guys have found a way to all get in a room together and mend a bridge? Do you think the band would have continued or was it so far gone that the, the record could have been a huge hit and it didn't matter? Everybody was out the door. Everybody was out the door. There would not have been a chance in hell at that point that we would have got back in a room together. It's amazing. No the amazing, the biggest platform, the biggest moment, and it wouldn't have mattered what happened. The band was effectively over at the time people were seeing this huge moment. I found that immensely fascinating. And of course, from there, you know, Mark and Dana go off and do slaughter and have huge success with that. And the real, the last takeaway on all this that I found fascinating too, was the fact that 
really now you know that bringing us up to the current time i did and you mentioned that and i appreciate you mentioning me in the book because you mentioned that interview i did with Vinny. i had very short time with him and that interview i did uh earlier this year or late last year whenever it was and you know i got to what i could get to with him but i was really surprised because um Robert Fleischman was there and he's going to do something now live with Fleischman and he did at that convention. But when I brought up Mark Slaughter to him, he had a, he, he just said that guy should have never sang on the record. And he, he didn't have a kind vibe. The only guy he did not have a kind vibe about at all was Mark. And I know Mark and I love Mark. So my takeaway, my takeaway on that, and I love Dana, and I know him as well, but my takeaway on the whole Mark thing now, especially after reading your book, is this, and tell me if I'm right. When, when I look at that period of time, Mark Slaughter ended up becoming a hired gun singer at the time who also ended up holding all the cards because Chrysalis hitched their wagon to him they were going to sign him as a guy signed to the rec- you know the the override they had to get him in the contract so really right. it was a case of like mark could have swung to one side and been with vinny or swung to the other side and gone the other way and do you think that all of this is based off of resentment at that time that that mark went off and did what he did because he ended up finding himself holding all the cards at one point you know, it, it, it's hard to say. My impression at the time, and of course, it was it was a little shocking to hear like that level of dismissal toward Bart, because we all know Mark's one of the coolest guys ever, and and uh, and and Mark was always, you know, they always got it was always very amicable, and and uh, with, with Vinny, and and uh, uh, so that 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 kind of came out of left field to some degree. You know, my impression of that day, that interview, that vibe is that, especially when he was talking about Gene and Paul and how like over the top magnanimous he was towards towards them in his reflections about they're his brothers and that band was the greatest experience you know, things that I've never heard before coming I've never heard Vinny say that before you know back in the day I, I felt like what we were getting was a sort of like a, a heightened emotional representation of what maybe Vinny really felt so I could be wrong but I felt like for him to like go off that hardcore on Mark was was had to be some sort of heightened, uh, uh, you know, idea about the way he really felt. Uh, because it's true that during the first tour with Alice, uh, he was up Mark's ass about his vocals. Well, this is this is Mark's first major tour, his first time fronting a band without his guitar around his neck. He's 22. He's getting his feet wet. Uh, and and, and Vinny was pretty blunt with him and pretty brutal during that the the Alice tour. <clears throat> about the about his vocals and how he needed to get together and this and that <clears throat> excuse me by the time we hit iron maiden though he'd really found his stride and throughout the entire process on the second record we didn't hear one negative thing out of Vinny's mouth about mark he seemed happy with him mark did a great job on the record everything seemed cool and so that that's kind of like how we were blindsided by it so but your point about was there any resentment there uh, in terms of mark holding the cards i mean i think it could be that the other thing we got to remember is, you know, on that first Slaughter record, let's not forget, man, you know, that song Burning, Burning Bridges, Bridges right? on yeah. that record. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was, everybody knew that was about Vinny, and, and, and Mark and Dana were not bashful about talking about right. uh, everything we went through on that last tour, all of those things. So the other thing that occurred to me is, you know, here we are 20-plus years later. Vinny, if he wants now, has a chance to sort of, you know, strike back. Right. He's he's, he's been stewing for 20 years and he's going to let his thing fly. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, that's a good point, too. But I just looked at it as like, you know, the way it, it shook out, Mark ended up being the guy that the label wanted to kind of hitch their wagon to. And they ended up going in that direction. And that's what ended up being becoming slaughter. And, and the last thing. Right. The last thing is, is that what's interesting is the fact that you're the only guy from the band that didn't go join Slaughter. You at that point felt like you wanted to go off and do some of your own stuff and and do some different things creatively and try some different sides to your drumming. But um, what I found fascinating is you actually had a hand in getting Blas Elias in Slaughter. Well, a small hand in it. You know, I mean, I I uh, had a conversation with Blas early on, uh, letting him know that I was not going to do the gig and. Uh, encouraging him to to you know put his hat in the ring so to speak which he did so he really 
uh, was proactive in, in hustling the gig outright and, and sending in his promo pack and all that. And then when I talked to Dana a few weeks later and he mentioned that, I go, yeah, man, he's, he's a great young drummer. He'd be a, a great choice for you guys to, to bring into the fold. And of course, I think he was the perfect choice for that band. He sounded great. He looked great. He had a, by that point, he developed a really cool vibe visually. And, uh, and of course he's a, he's a Houston homeboy. You know, I, I do boss from several years prior, you know, so it was cool. I was glad he got the gig, put it that way. And I always bust his balls because he's a guy that clearly found the fountain of youth because he still looks exactly the same. <laughs> and it bums me. And, like, I want to yeah. kill that guy. It's like, how the hell do you not age, man, every time I see him? But uh, what a great well, guy and a great player. Too. Yeah, Clean living for that for Bloss, too. He's always been a proponent of clean living and uh, just taking care of himself. Plus, I'm sure there's some genetic advantages he has in there as well you know well and and real quick i would be remiss if i didn't bring up clean living with you because you are a a picture of health i mean that's talked about in the book too where you you do running and workouts after shows and you are a strict your, your diet's very strict you're a vegan you've got all these sort of things which is 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 amazing and an amazing commitment and and really pretty incredible um the one thing i wondered about you and of course people should just pick up the book because there's so much more that we're not touching on. Again, the book is called This Boy is Gonna Rock and and we've been talking to Bobby Rock. But Bobby, I always wondered this, especially back in those days and even now, physically, but back then, I mean, you were, you mentioned this too, you went on tour with Alice Cooper. Kane Roberts was pretty much the only other rock guy at that point that was as bulked up and cut looking as you were. And I wonder, did, do you think that ever worked against you in terms of getting gigs? Like, did ever, did anybody ever say to you, your look looking like that and being that muscular looking would have been a negative in terms of being too, too overpowering or did it ever also impact your playing? There was a time where George Lynch was uh got real and, and George admitted he was on the juice and all that. He got really bulked up, and George said to me that it 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 messed with his playing. He didn't have the dexterity in his hands. So as far as your physical appearance, I mean, no one would ever fault you for being the in the in the shape that you're in. But do you think it ever hurt you from a visual standpoint in joining a band? And has it ever impacted your playing in a way where you've you know, maybe it made you too tight or it didn't. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I heard it from George. So I was right. always wondering about you as a drummer, if it helped or you felt it helped or hurt you, to, especially back then when you were that big. Well, you know, the reason I did it initially, the reason I got into weight training was to help the drumming, that to be able to hit harder, play longer, have more stamina. And, and, and what got me into the mindset is, is I looked at uh, uh, you know, a lot of the pro uh, like prize fighters, you know, boxers. So why do these guys, you know, because there's, there's always this mythology that if you get muscular, it's going to slow you down. But then I look at a lot of the, you know, like Mike Tyson and, and a lot of those kind of guys, man. And, and they, they were, these guys had a lot of muscle on them, but yet they were super fast as well. So that was part of the initial experiment, you know, to back when I was playing clubs before Vinnie Mensa, this is when I started lifting. And I noticed an improvement immediately in how hard I could hit and how long I could play back then doing three and four sets a night, this kind of thing. So the reason for me to always do it and the reason I still do it to this day is because it's the primary reason is for that is just for the extra conditioning, you know, to, to keep the body fine tuned to be able to accommodate, you know, the, the rigors of what we have to do. And I got to tell you, man, even all these years later, man, I, I have there has been zero indication of any kind of decline in my playing so far, knock on wood, in terms of, you know, my mobility, uh, endurance, power, speed, et cetera. Uh, now, as for whether that's, that's been a disadvantage, like did somebody say, well, yeah, uh, we, don't, we don't like Bobby's look or whatever. If that was ever the case, they, nobody's ever really told me that outright. Uh, I've been told that I could, in light of not getting a particular audition or something like that, a friend or two has, has mentioned the, the prospect of something like that. But I've never been told that directly, like, oh, we would hire you, but you need to lose 30 pounds and stop lifting weights. You know, yeah. I never got that. Uh, nobody's ever said that, but it, it's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, and it would be ridiculous for somebody to say that, but it was unusual at the time. It was something that made you stand out 
a guy like you and Kane Roberts, I mean, there were not many guys. Most of them were, were you know, the, the look was the skinny, emaciated look, you know. And, right, you right. know, you guys exactly. were, were cut and, the you know, you know weight trained and, and, and bulked up and, and, and all that. I mean, it just, in, the, in that rock world, it was definitely a unique thing and still is. And that's why I always wondered about that aspect of it. Well, listen, man, I could, I could talk to you forever about this. I'm glad we had a chance to catch up. And, of course, the book goes sure. from there. You join Nelson. You talk about playing with them. You talk about some of the other stuff you've done. I had no idea that was you on the Nitro record, which you recorded. And uh, ironically, with Lita Ford's ex-husband, which you would have never known at the time, of course. So there, there's right. a lot of uh, there's a lot of other layers to this story. And maybe we'll get into some of the other stuff uh, when we have a little bit more time. But it was great talking to you about this. And I urge everybody you want to read a great story, a really well-written book uh, by a great drummer and a great dude, Bobby rock who's joined us for the last uh almost 45 minutes to an hour again the book is called the boy is gonna rock it is out now and for all of the people that are fascinated by the years of vinnie vincent and the vinnie vincent invasion this is the most in detail uh telling of that story that has been out there so far so bobby thank you for the time and before i let you go let everybody know where they can get the book is it at amazon is it on your own site what's the best place for them to go to get it and pretty much anywhere where books are sold online, you can find it. If you, if somebody wants like a, an autographed copy, or if they want to buy it in like a bundle with some other stuff, drumsticks or signed photos or solo CDs or whatever, BobbyRockStore.com is the best place for that. Otherwise, you know, Kindle on Amazon and you know, Barnes and Noble online and all the other places they should be able to find it. I really enjoyed it, man. Thanks for taking the time. I'll see you out there with Lita sometime soon. Thanks for having me, Eddie. I really appreciate it, bro. You got it, man. Take care. Later. There he goes, everybody. Bobby Rock. Well, my thanks to Bobby Rock. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Like I said, it's always fun to talk to some of those guys that you don't always hear from. And Bobby is a great dude and a great player. And it was great to get all that great Vinnie Vincent invasion news from him, taking you back to 30 years ago, plus when those records were first made. And what happens with Vinnie going forward? You know, he's got this uh, live show coming up in in uh, Memphis. And it's interesting because Bobby's book ends with him seeing me interview Vinny for the first time in like 20 years. And he does reference it in his book. And that's kind of where Vinny's, uh, that's where Bobby's story ends in the book. So check the book out for much more detail and information. It is available now from Bobby Rock. And I thank him for his time and joining me, of course, on the Eddie Trunk podcast. And as usual, all the interviews here on the podcast originate on my daily talk show on Sirius XM 106 volume. Hear it live every day, 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time, replaying every night, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern, on demand as well on the Sirius XM app. And as I said earlier, Sirius XM is now free to all to listen to until September 10th on the app, on demand, or on the radios. So check it out and sample Trunk Nation on volume. Hope you join me and uh, listen to me live each and every day, Monday through Friday, in that 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time window, or check the replays every night, 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Have a lot of fun talking rock with you live on that show and bringing you some interviews as uh, that Bobby Rock interview you just heard came from. All right, so again, social media, at Eddie Trunk, Twitter, where I am most active, and be sure to follow because there's a lot going on. There's also Instagram and Facebook, simply out my name. And, of course, eddytrunk.com, which is the official online home. You guys have yourselves a great week. I'll see you next Thursday for another all-new Eddie Trunk podcast, free as usual, podcastone.com or iTunes.
Listen to Richard and Jasmine Blaze fighting for the spotlight. You were very grumpy. I wasn't very grumpy. I was a little grumpy. He really is starving for attention. This is like this corkscrew spiral right now. <laughs> it's the recipe to a good time. Baking is the golf of my food competition. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is. It's golf. I'm, I'm golf class. Yeah, I'm going to sit yeah. down on my sofa. I'm probably going to fall asleep, but that's okay. <laughs> I'll wake up before they announce it. Who's getting the jacket? Make sure you download Starving for Attention every Tuesday on Podcast One or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com.